0: We're going to continue this morning our study into these um, five sermons on the book of Genesis. Last week we talked about the creation story, and I believe that God uh, blessed us in our study. This morning we're going to talk about the image of God, and uh, from the viewpoint of a conservative, we are of course talking about the creation story of Genesis 1 and 2, but you need to understand that many do not accept the story of Genesis 1 and 2 as a true meaning for what constitutes the image of God. These people say that man's image has evolved over millions of years, maybe even billions of years, through multiple ancestors, the latest being the great ape, and we are in fact, to the evolutionists, in the image of the closest of those apes, probably the chimpanzee. That's where we find our image. So what does the image of God mean? Well, we're going to talk about that this morning, and I will tell you that because of the way in which we interpret the creation story, we often get it wrong, the image of God. For example, there is a great deal of discussion regarding the ruin-slash-restoration theory of creation, ruin-restoration in fact, after last week's study, someone asked me if I believed the ruin restoration theory of creation. What is that theory? Let me tell you. The ruin restoration theory says that there is a gap of indefinite time between verse 1 and verse 2 in Genesis chapter 1. Huge gap of time. Um, it reads actually like this to those who believe in the ruin restoration theory. Genesis 1 verse 1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then comes this indefinite huge period of time, which is then followed by verse 2, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the, of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So you see this ruin restoration theory says that God created the earth in the beginning. Then he went off and left it. And uh, he left it for this long gap, this indefinite period of time between verse 1 and 2. And then... The Spirit came back in verse 2 and brought order and beauty to the world, which had been dormant throughout this long gap of time. He brought restoration to the ruin that had existed, and finally, that was what finished the creation story. That's why I said that the way in which we interpret the Genesis account of creation makes quite a difference in what we believe. And my answer, at least the answer that satisfies me, is that I do not hold at all to the ruin restoration theory of creation. And I have some reasons for not accepting it. But when I share these reasons with you, you must remember that I am a theologian and not a scientist. And the first reason that I offer is a text. It's Hebrews 4, verse 3. Hebrews 4, verse 3. The works were finished from the foundation of the world. And this, at least in my mind, eliminates the possibility of a ruin restoration theory. The works were finished. The second reason is a quote from one of my favorite authors. And it also, at least in my mind, minimizes the chance that a huge gap of time existed between verse 1 and verse 2. The quote says, listen carefully, that in the, for, in the formation of our world, God was not indebted to pre-existing matter. The ruin, ra- uh, ruin restoration theory would make God indebted to pre-existing matter. He created it in the beginning, went off and left it, came back and then recreated it from the, from the matter that was there after verse 1. I do not believe, therefore, that a big gap of time existed between verse, two, between verse 2 and verse 1 of Genesis 1. But you need to remember again that I am a theologian and not a scientist. The third reason is that the Hebrew word that is translated without form and void that's found in verse 2 does not carry with it in the Hebrew the idea of something being laid waste and recreated later. The Hebrew word doesn't allow that. And again, this in itself is not enough to totally discount the ruin restoration theory, but it at least satisfies me. Now, Let's talk about the image of God. Genesis 1:26 and 27. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And as we continue to study Genesis 1 and 2, from this point on, we're going to become less scientific and more theological. Too often these chapters are regarded simply as a description of, of how the world came into being. And if we look at it simply in that light, we miss what I believe is the real purpose for creation. And I'll tell you right up front what I believe that purpose is. Here it comes. I believe that Genesis 1 and 2 were written to reveal to us the nature of the God who is our Creator. And in that light, for example, have you ever thought how the isms describe God? For example, atheism says there is no God at all. Polytheism says that there are many gods, a multiplicity of them. Materialism declares that matter is the only true reality in the universe. Matter is the only God that there is. Pantheism believes that everything is God, and God is everything. Humanism says that man is the measure of all things, and that, therefore, God is rather insignificant and quite inconsequential. And finally, existentialism believes that God has no given nature at all. They say that man creates his own world, and further, that man, therefore, also creates his own God. In contrast to all of this is the beautiful creation story of the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. And when you read it, you see that God is pictured as the Creator, and when you read it again, you see him as divine, intelligent, purposeful, all-powerful, free, self-acting, self-revealing, and a personal God. You see, brethren, I believe that Moses does not use the creation story nearly so much to tell us about the origin of the world as he does to describe to us the originator Of the world. I believe that his major purpose is to reveal to us the nature of the God who brought all of this into being. And to become bogged down then in the argument between science and religion or creation and evolution is to miss the whole point of the creation account. For if, as we learned last week, that it really is all a matter of faith, then let's have faith in the Creator and let's let Him worry about the details of how it was accomplished. A study of the creation story will more fully reveal the true purpose of it. And that we've already said is to tell us what the Creator is like. For example, If I try to describe my mother by telling you how she acts in the kitchen while preparing dinner, I am still giving you a description of my mother and not an account of the art of cooking. This is also true with the creation story. Follow me if you will. If you opened a book and found an essay in which every passage of the book began with a statement and Napoleon fought, what would you say the essay would be about? And the answer is obviously that it would be primarily about Napoleon and only secondarily about the battles he fought. It would be to tell you what Napoleon is like. This is the same also with the story of creation found in Genesis 1. Let me show you what I mean. There are 8 paragraphs in the first chapter of the book. So let's look at them. 1 verse 1 in the beginning God created and the earth came into existence. Chapter 2, 1 verse 3 and God said and light began to shine. Verse 1 verse 6 and God said and the ur- and the firmament separated. One verse nine, and God said, and the land became dry. Chapter one verse fourteen, and God said, and the lights in the heavens began to shine. Chapter one verse twenty, and the God said, and the waters produced living creatures. One verse twenty four, and God said, and the earth brought forth cattle. One verse twenty six, and God said. And man achieved dominion. Do you see it? Moses' emphasis is not primarily upon nature and its processes, which in the scientific world we call natural science. The basic structure of the story says that his primary interest is in God and in the activities of God. In fact, the word God is used 34 times in Genesis chapter 1. Let me illustrate it another way. You see there are four expressions that are repeated for each day of creation week. The first expression is, and God said. And it talks about the utter effortlessness it took to create the world's What could God have done less than to just simply say and still do something, not much less? His power is so great that when he exerts himself just enough to say a word, a whole world comes into existence. That's why the psalmist can say, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. God's power is manifested in his word. Doesn't that speak about the nature and the character of the God that we are to serve? And if God can create a world by the power of his word, can he not then also by the power of his word create in me a clean heart and a right spirit? The second phrase that is used in every day of creation is the phrase, it was so. This is emphatic. There's no room for doubt as to what happened. It was so, and the work was accomplished. The task was completed. The authority of God's word was beyond question. It was so, it was done, it was accomplished. What he said uh, was to be done was done. God's word is final. The psalmist says in Psalms 33, verse 9, He spake and it was done, He commanded and it stood fast. Nature is obedient to Him. How surprised would we be if on one of those days we were to read, And God said, but it wasn't so? And if nature is obedient to Him, because He is the ultimate authority, doesn't He then? deserve our obedience as well. The third expression is, it was good. This is an expression of the perfection that existed in the design of the world. God looked out upon his handiwork and was satisfied. Everything that he had done was perfect, absolutely perfect. Everything within his view was the very best that it could possibly be. Everything in in creation was in conformity with his law. The whole world was pure. But God always creates good. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift is from above. Evil is foreign to his nature. It would be hard to imagine God looking out, over the things that he's just produced and hear him say, well, I don't like this. It's awful. I wonder what went wrong. And you see then, the story is here to tell us that God is perfect and, in the, and that in the beginning, everything that he made was also perfect. Even Adam and Eve reflected the perfect nature of the one in whose image they had been created don't you see where we're heading with this line we are heading to the point that it's all going to be repeated there's coming a time when by the power of grace all creation will be restored to perfection and god's people will once again perfectly reflect the image of god at the time of the fall a curse was pronounced upon the earth And because of the curse, nature does not now demonstrate the beauty in which it was created, but there is coming a day when the curse will be removed and perfection will be restored. The revelator speaks about a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. My friends, I can hardly wait for that day. And finally, the fourth phrase is, there was evening... And there was mourning and this speaks about order and regularity and is it not true that god is a god of order and shouldn't all things then that we do be done decently and in order in fact orderliness ought to be the pattern for our lives there ought to be orderliness everywhere in our lives including in the church and the account of creation even helps us there for every seventh day we have the memorial of his orderliness remember the seventh day to keep it holy worship him who made heaven and earth and the sea in the fountains of water and when we order our lives in such a way that we worship him every week on the day which is the memorial of his creation we do him honor the Sabbath coming to us from, our, from creation week itself allows us the opportunity to escape six days of chaos, to bring order to our lives, and to worship him as creator. This phrase, by the way, also indicates that each day of creation was a 24-hour period, 24 hours long, And if you honor the memorial of his creation, you will never believe in evolution for the two are mutually exclusive. The Sabbath, you see, brings us into harmony with the will of God. It causes us to worship him as God. Sabbath keepers escape the isms that lead other men astray. And so the creation story is not given to tell us about nature. But to reveal the God of nature, it is to tell us what he is like and why he can be trusted and why we can turn our lives over to him with full and complete confidence. And that which tells us most about him and about his nature is man, the crowning act of creation, the climax of the story. The text says... So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. This is why they were created on the sixth day, the final day of creation. They were created in the image of God, in his image. They were separate and distinct from plant life, separate and distinct from animal life. The sweet lady with spiritual insight says that they were, quote-unquote, a new and distinct order of being. There was nothing else like them. They alone were made in the image of God. Not plants, not flowers, not animals. And I'm going to make a bold statement here. Because they were created as a new and distinct order of being, I'm going to suggest to you that man is not an animal. And just what is the image of God? Well, plants are one order of being. Animals are another. But they are not a copy of the one who gave them life. Man alone was designed to reflect the image of God, the image of the creator. And this means that only man could reflect his nature and develop a character akin to that of the maker. Therefore, I suggest that when we are talking about being made in his image, we ought to be using terms like nature and character, being made in the, in the nature and character of God. Usually when we talk about the image of God, we think pretty much of the physical image. That says that we are made in God's likeness because like God, we have two arms, two legs, a body, and a head. And we do that because we believe in the literalness of the creation account. We believe that the Genesis account is true and that the days of creation were 24-hour days, and that the order in which things were made is exact. And if all of these things are true, then because we are made in God's image, we somehow have come to believe that He must look like us. And when we think like that, we fail to see that the logic breaks down. Because we are made in God's image, does that mean that he looks like us. Is God just a very large man? Or does it mean instead that we we reflect his image and not that he reflects ours? And while I do not deny that it may include the physical, I will deny that the physical is the primary meaning of the term, the image of God. It is not. And when Adam came from the creator's hand, he bore in his physical and mental and spiritual nature a likeness of his maker. That quote comes from the sweet little lady with the red books. When, man, when Adam came from the creator's hand, he bore in his physical, mental, and spiritual nature a likeness like that of his maker. Again, she says... Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the creator. And so you ask, what is the power that is akin to that of the creator? Every human being created in the image of God is endowed with a power akin to that of the creator. What is that individually, Excuse me, individuality, a power to think and to do. That's what it means. Listen again. Every faculty of mind and soul reflected the Creator's glory. Endowed with high mental and spiritual gifts, Adam and Eve were made, but little lower than the angels, that they might not only discern the wonders of the universe, but comprehend Moral responsibilities and obligations. Moral responsibilities and obligations. And once again, Christ alone is the express image of the Father, but man was formed in the likeness of God. His nature was in harmony with the will of God, his mind was capable of comprehending divine things, his affections were pure. His appetites and passions were under the control of reason. He was holy and happy in bearing the image of God and in perfect obedience to his will. These are the things that define the, nas- the divine image in which we were created. The image of God. Man was created to reveal that. Do you suppose that God's purpose in the creation of man has changed since then? Or should we not not be fully reflecting the image of Jesus still? The real question in this issue is, can the world see Jesus in me? Can the world see Jesus in me, in you? The issue is not, can the world see me in the ape? Can the world see the chimp in me? These things are not the image of God. Conclusion and appeal. Conclusion and appeal, to look upon Genesis 1 and 2 as simply a story of how the world came into existence is to miss the whole reason for which it was written. And the purpose of the created things of nature is the same for us today as it was for our very first parents who were created perfectly in the image of God. Listen for one last time from one of my favorite books, Patriarchs and Prophets, page 1551. The holy pair were not only children under the fatherly care of God, but students receiving instruction from the all-wise creator. The mysteries of the invisible universe afforded them an exhaustless source of instruction and delight. The laws and operations of nature, which have engaged men's study for 6,000 years, were opened to their minds by the infinite Father and the upholder of all. They, Adam and Eve, they held converse with leaf and flower and tree, gathering from each the secrets of its life. With every living creature, from the mighty Leviathan that plays in the water to the insect moat that floats in the sunbeam, Adam was familiar. He had given to each its name, and he was acquainted with the nature and habits of every one of them. God's glory in the heavens, the innumerable worlds in their orderly revolutions, the mysteries of light and sound of day and night, all were open to the study of our first parents. On every leaf of the forest or stone of the mountains, in every shining star, in earth and air and sky, God's name was written. The order and harmony of creation spoke to them of infinite wisdom and infinite power they were ever discovering some attraction that filled their hearts with deeper love and called forth fresh expressions of gratitude the creation story the purpose of it you see is not so near not nearly so much to tell us how things began but instead to reveal to us the nature of the one who began it all. The creator's name and character were stamped on every created thing. From it we are to learn that God is love, and to be made in his image then is to reflect that love. Can the world see Jesus in me? Can the world see Jesus in you? Does your love for him ring true and your life and service too. Can the world see Jesus in you? Father in heaven, we would know more about God. We would know more about his nature because we want to be led by him. We want to be like him. We want to be under the control and influence of who God is and why we were created. Thank you, Father, for being with us this morning. Speak to us always of your love. Help us to see in God everything that is beautiful and lovely and orderly. In Jesus' name, amen.